uh, this, a lot of stuff's going on. Like I say this first and foremost, Merry Christmas. I have to say that because I won't see, because, you know, Christmas is on Sunday, right? So this is this week, so I may not see some of you before that. So Merry Christmas. Um, it's, it's obvious, you know, when the college students are gone, you can start feeling it a little bit. So that's a good thing. Be, be, be reminded of the college students who are out with us this morning. Be praying for them as they're going, a lot of them going home, already home, and will be back with us uh, when they return. Um, and so that is, that's a really wonderful thing for us to be praying for as well together as a church. Um, a couple things, if you want to, go ahead and get to your places in your Bible. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you want to go ahead and get there, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be in 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this morning we're going to be looking at a sermon entitled, Christmas Clarity, A Baby Born to Die. Now, Here's the thing, I actually have uh, preached this before, here, and I want to tell you what I do typically almost every Christmas. I preach this one at some point. I cannot help it. It's like one of those things that as I'm reading through the, the, uh, the New Testament, my eyes see Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and I start thinking of two moments in history. I think of a manger, and I think of a cross. A manger and a cross. I'll say it again, a manger and I think of a cross. This morning, before we start, I'm going to pray, if I may. And so I'm going to pray for the text. We're going to pray for uh, the sermon in which we are about to receive. So let us, let us pray together really quickly. Lord God, we come before you now. Lord, we pray, as we must, that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Not man's mouth or opinion, but Lord God, what does your word say to us, your people? Lord, what does your word say to us who are not your people? Lord, we pray that you be with your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, this brief and beautiful text that we're about to look at is one of the fullest. It's one of the most explicit descriptions in all of the New Testament of the identity of the child that lies in the manger of Christmas. The incarnation of Christ is not only the central reality of Christ, uh, Christmas, it's not, it's not only, and it is, the central reality of Christmas, this reality, this understanding that we must comprehend is the central reality of all of Christianity. And to overlook this, to, uh, to, to pass by it, to not pay it much attention, is not to have a Christmas problem, church. It would be to have a Christian problem problem. So I'm grateful for Scott uh, a couple weeks ago who, who took the four names of the names of that baby in the manger and in that sermon, if you remember Scott, uh, well the text of scripture alludes to it, points to it, screams very loudly, this baby is God. Then Brandon gets up, and he did last week, and, and he talks about the Trinity and helps us understand that the baby in that manger is the one who existed from all eternity past. Amen? That that is who is in the manger. This morning, I want God's Word, the text of Scripture. Here, the Apostle Paul makes reference to all this, in, and the language that I want you to see in this text it screams. It doesn't whimper. It doesn't whisper. It screams the incarnation of Jesus Christ in that manger. And it screams for us why he did come. 
You see, in a world where many think Jesus to be simply a good man, possibly a great teacher, maybe even a model for all of us to follow, and or a political leader of the Jews in a Roman rule, meaning in history, this text simply declares something wholly different. I was going to show a video clip. I'm not going to. I'm just going to explain it to you now. There was, there was one a clip that I saw many, many years ago. With the, it basically was these little ch- these kids that were retelling the story of Jesus. And in the recounting of the story of Jesus, literally, as a Christian, I'm listening to it and thinking to myself, oh, this is cute. It's beautiful. The kids are getting words wrong. And, it, you know, it's just it's innocent and beautiful and, and it's sweet. And then, and then towards the end, the, there's one specific kid who gets really emotional and he's just like, Jesus is such a good guy. Jesus did this for us, or Jesus was the... And, and, and I'm like, okay, this is beautiful, kids, you know, kids. And at the very end of the video, it goes, from the Church of, of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, they, they go, Keith, okay. <laughs> oh, was it, was it, was it Keith? It was to the right. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I was thinking the same thing. I'll be honest. I was sitting there going, oh, this is so sweet. Because here's the thing about Mormonism. Mormonism believes that Jesus Christ is beautiful, that he's good, he's a great teacher, he's a great model, but they do not say that he is God. They say that he is a God, that he was born of, uh, 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 not of a virgin, he was born of a a woman who actually had uh, more than one child. She had Jesus and she had Satan. They're brothers. Brothers, they're brothers in Mormonism. So you see what I'm trying to say here is, look, if we can get a concept of who Jesus is in this manger, it makes the world a difference. It really makes a difference on how we perceive God to be or who Jesus is in regards to the incarnation at Christmas. We can acknowledge Jesus to be special. We can. We can even declare him important. We can. We can come to appreciate and love the baby in a manger. We can. And yet, if we do not, if we know not who it is in this manger... Rightly, fully, wholly, we can still miss the entire point of Christmas, and I would say that we would miss the entire point of Christianity. So here's the question. Who is in the manger? Who is in the manger? For this morning, there are uh, several things that I would desire for us to see um, from this morning's sermon, and that is this. There's three realities and before I get there, I've wondered to myself, how, how should I introduce this text this morning? How should we preach it? How should we look at it with each other? I don't seek to be too technical. I could talk about, and we will allude to and point to the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is, is, it's one, is this. That Jesus Christ is fully God, and at the same time, he is absolutely fully man. It's the hypostatic union. We could deal with the heretical doctrinal enemies of such texts and such doctrines as Gnosticism, Arianism, and Nestorianism. And, and that's something that Brandon made, uh, alluded to and pointed to. And, and as a student of history, uh, Brandon, what do we know about each one of those, those uh, teachings in history? They have been tried and they have been found what? Wanting. They have been dealt with in the history of the church as not being Christian. And however, all I know this morning from this text, this is my introduction, all I know to do is to share with you this morning from this text as one whose very joy and passion is to help the truth of this text truthfully explode in meaning for every one of you this Christmas season. This is my desire. So if you will, 
And if you'd like to stand with me, you can. Let it stand in reverence of this word together this morning. That's a beautiful sound. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And let its reverence before God's word this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, 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 church. You may be seated. What a beautiful text of Scripture. And this morning... Uh, there are three specific uh, uh, points or, or uh, areas of application for us to consider and think through as we look at this text. And from this text this morning, those three are this. We see in our text that Jesus left an exalted position. We will see that in verses 6 through 7a. Number two, that Jesus accepts the standing of a slave. We see that in 7b. And then three, Jesus receives a humiliating death. We see that in verse 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles once again, I will put the text of Scripture up before us. Let's look at 6 and 7a, and this is a point one, that Jesus left an exalted position. And let me read it again, if we may. Have this mind among yourselves stop. The Apostle Paul says this to us this morning. He says, church, listen, have this mind among yourself. Think about these things. Apply these things in your mind. Know this. He goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is this next part is very important, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, everything that Paul is about to say, Christian, have your mind, believer, have your mind considering it's considered in the face and the reason of Jesus Christ. That apart from God allowing us the saving knowledge of Jesus, this is darkness to us, makes no sense. But that which is to be known is known, and it is to be known in the face of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. As we remember from uh, uh, the last several weeks, the eternal son of God, this baby in a manger, existed uh, eternally, not only before Bethlehem, but even before the very creation of the universe. Here we see the humiliating step downward. Listen, I want you to, I want you to comprehend, try to bring your mind to this level. I need you to understand that when, when Jesus comes, it's a stepping downward. And this is what takes place from an exalted position. This is the point 
of this section. Jesus leaves, he left an exalted position. Before we get to that, that stepping down, I need you to understand what's going on in the text. Some really, really neat things are happening in just 6 and 7 alone. And you're going to see a whole lot more of that towards the end when we continue to the text. But look at 6 and 7. The word here that we have before us, I have it, uh, I think it's up here in the text as well. It is the word form. And I want you to pay attention to this word. There are two Greek words for form. And both of their usages are there in our text. One is 6 and 7. There's a form of the word form. And then in verse 8, there's another word for the word form in our text. This is why context is always important to understand exactly what the word of God is telling us. And I've told you this before. This text this morning will scream to us the existence of the one in the manger. The first thing I want you to see is the word morph. Morph. M-O-R-F-E. Excuse me, P-H-E. That is what you see in 6 and 7. And then there's the other, the Greek word for the word form is schema. And you see that in verse 8. And the difference between these words are vital if we are to understand Christmas. Yes, I just said it. These two words are important if we are to understand Christmas. You see, the word schema is where we get the word schematics. Uh, uh, It's used to express the outward expression of an object, meaning the actual physical form of an object. Um, Some of you ladies this morning... You woke up, and you got out of the bed, and you looked into the mirror, and you put on your schematics. You know what I'm saying? It's the makeup, right? Some of you men need it, but, you know, we try not to practice that too much, right? The schematics is what is being built. It's, what's, it's what people see on the outside of the appearance. It's, what you, it's the paint on the house. It's, the, it's the, the paint on the face. It's the clothing in which we wear, and that's the mildest form of it. It's, it's more than that, and I'll explain that in a minute. But what I want you to know is it's the outside. It's the things that can change of an individual. However, the word morph is the essential, in the essential form, it, it means it's the thing that never alters. It, it is what it is. It's intrinsic. An example of that would be like our DNA. Our DNA, and I know it's not very popular today, uh, but yet it's still logical. DNA says man DNA says woman. And that is intrinsic. That is the morph of us, male and female. God did make them. And so it literally means, it's like this. In regard to Jesus being in the form, we see it here in our text, the morph, this is morph of God, it means the continual or a previous state of existence. Literally, it's the essence and the nature of Jesus in this manger is, let me just put here, I'm not really good at math, but let me tell you what equal means here. Equals fully God. Jesus is in the form God. In his intrinsic nature, everything about the inner workings of who he is, he is God. An example I give, and I'm always hesitant to show pictures, and therefore I will not, is when I was in high school, if you remember the story, I was... Uh, Miss North Gastonia, homecoming queen, 1999, right? I dressed the part. I won't tell you what my name was. It's not appropriate for this uh, this place and setting. I had a name. I went up against the homecoming court. I was the most beautiful man-woman of them all, and I won. And I got the scepter and a crown, and I got to walk around and wave in my dress and my heels. Yes, I did. 
And now you know why I didn't show a picture. <laughs> and here's the thing. Let me tell you a little, a little backdrop before this, before I keep going. I literally, I got my crown and scepter as the homecoming queen thing, and I get in a van to go to, get this, Washington, D.C. for, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, my goodness. They used to, uh, it's for men. What, promise Keepers. I was dressed in a dress and a wig going to Promise Keepers. Lord, how mercy. Somebody get a hold of that man. If there was anybody who needed Promise Keepers, it was that young man, right? I heard this is a men's rally, right? And here I am. And this is the thing that I want you to understand. It's not my finest hour, but I am Kyle. And I am in the form Morph, amen, I am. DNA cannot, it cannot be changed. Our culture would say, uh, maybe identify with something else. But here's the problem with that. It doesn't matter what you identify with. Your DNA, your morph is intrinsic. It cannot change. Slap lipstick on me and a dress and a wig, and it does not change the fact that I am in every way morph man. It does not change. I am also in the form of man as a schematic, a schema. I have been a baby, I have been a teenager, I have been a young man, and I will soon be an old man. You young people, you better be quiet. You already, you already put me in that category. I know some of you already have. I will be an old man, if not already an old man. And though my physical form has changed, my schematics, my schema, my eternal maleness will never. And it's important for us to understand this morning what's going on in the text. Because in the text it says that God, that Jesus Christ did not count. He says that he was in the form in every way like God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. The issue here that Paul is saying is this. By his very nature and innate being, Jesus Christ is, always has been, and always be forever fully God. This will never change. This is his morph. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say to you is the Greek, the original language of the text, screams to us the essence of this baby. Our Jesus is fully God. Two passages of scripture that, that, that points and to alludes and screams to this reality. One is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And listen, listen, listen. The exact imprint of his nature. Wow. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who is it making reference to? It's making reference to Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 19 says this. He is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, listen to the worst word is really important, preeminent, means before all things. For in him the fullness of God was pleased 
to dwell. Amen? This is something we must comprehend, understand, and know. Here at the start of Christ's incarnation, we see the most profound example of humility. By definition, to forsake perfection requires one to take on some form of imperfection. This we shall soon see is exactly what Jesus Christ does at the incarnation of, listen, Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Look with me what it says. Even though Jesus, being in the very form of God in every way, it goes on to say this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oh, this sentence can be somewhat confusing if you do not pay close attention to what the original writer Paul is saying here. He's seeking to communicate something that's vital, vital of importance, vitally important for us as Christians. This does not mean that in becoming man or flesh that Jesus Christ somehow loses his equality with God. That's not what we're seeing. That's not what we're teaching. That's not what Paul's saying as God. No, we believe in the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God and fully man. The key to understanding this passage in this text specifically is in the word grasped, if you see that with me there in 7. The word grasp becomes from that Greek word, which interestingly means this. It has a broad possibility of interpretation. When I say broad, I'm talking about two, which isn't too broad. But the way that it's applied can be very broad. And I want you to know what that word here, apogamos, what does it mean? It means one or two things. It means one, it can mean this. It can mean to seize or carry off something by force. Literally, to snatch or to take, to steal, to rob. As in that implication or in the way in which that would read, he did not count equality with God a thing to be robbed. He did not count equality with God a thing to be snatched from God. That's what it could mean, but here's number two. And I think that if you look at the context of what's before us, it makes more sense. Look at me. It also means this. It can mean to hang on to something, to cling or to clutch. And I believe this would be a more accurate picture and view of what it means here for Jesus Christ to not grasp something. The meaning for us this morning for grasp is easy to understand in light of the morph of Jesus. Meaning, because Jesus already in every way possessed equality with God, the second meaning is in view. It is not that Jesus sought to take equality from God, By force, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The glory that belonged to God already belonged to Jesus. It was his. Mine. His. Not mine, Kyle. God, Christ, mine, my glory. It was his by nature. However, Jesus did not cling on to or hold that equality as a man. He steps down. Let me show you what that means practically. What it means is when Jesus comes to this world in the form of a baby in a manger, he takes that place of high position. The one in whom we see in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth, I mean, the earth is filled with his glory. The temple, the sh- it shook the foundations of heaven because of he who is God. That God, God of the universe, steps down from a lowly position. And let me show you what it, what it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ... Uh, uh, Well, it says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
not to steal. It's not to mine. It's not like this water bottle is mine, Ed. And um, I'm a pretty good guy if I don't if I don't get greedy with it, right? If I don't consider it a thing to be grasped. In other words, I don't consider it a thing to be mine. But this is not what's going on in our text. See, this is mine. And if this does not belong to you, and though it is mine and it doesn't belong to you, it says that God, Jesus Christ in God, it says he did not, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. What it means is that Jesus Christ, and as he comes, what belongs to him, he just does this. Fully his. He didn't hold on to it in a greedy fashion. He, meaning Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, the child in a manger, is not like Satan who wanted to be like God. He is not like Adam and Eve, our mother and father, wanting to be like God, having equality with him, who both sought to take it by force. Jesus doesn't go and rob. It belongs. It's his. And in his loving kindness and mercy, he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He lets it go. Jesus Brothers and sisters, he does the opposite. This child being fully God is seen giving up as not clinging to his place of high honor. So willing, in fact, look what it says in verse 7. He does what? He empties himself. Let us be clear. This is not saying that Jesus is no longer deity. It is God in Jesus setting aside his privileges and his rights as deity. Jesus the one who existed from all eternity past, who created the world, and he created every one of us for relationship, who loved us from the beginning, is the one who sees creation falling apart because of sin, and Jesus Christ comes and bears with us for 33 years on this planet as the one who has a crown, who takes off that crown and sets it aside for us. No story has ever been told quite like this one. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest act of humility and the second greatest act of love the world has ever known. God steps down. The king lowers himself. He comes into our world as flesh, this fallen nature, fallen humanity. He sits in a manger. He's born in a barn. He takes on all the things that we have in this life. And yet, what does he do? He sins not. Do we stop among the hustle and bustle of the season to recognize such truth? At Christmas, we rejoice in a God who left an exalted position. C.S. Lewis said it this way. No seed has ever failed so far from a tree into so dark and cold a soil as the Son of God. Two, Jesus accepts the standing of a slave. We see this in 7b. Now, it is interesting. I told you there are two uses of the word form, and there's one for the word schematic. We'll see that in verse 8. This is another aspect of the word form, which means intrinsic to who he is, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Stop. 
Jesus being fully God in form in every way. It says, this is something you need to know. We just got finished the attribute series. Let me tell you something about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something about God. God comes as a servant. The word here, servant, actually means slave. Brothers and sisters, can, can I just stop for a second? If I could just grab your faces and say, please listen to me. Do you understand who is at the base of that cross? Do you know who sits in the manger? He does. He relinquishes his place of honor. He comes the whole distance for us. And then it says that he becomes our slave. The king says to all those who would serve him, I will come and serve you. I will wash your feet. I will carry all your burdens. I will reach down in the muck and the mire and soil of my majesty. I will let that happen for your salvation. I will become your servant. I will become your slave. What? Have you ever heard of such a king who steps down from his throne and takes off his cloakly regalness and his crown he sets it aside so that he can maybe become the slave of those in whom he is king over exhibit a jesus christ and it says here in the text with us it says that he came born born in the likeness of men likeness not as but likeness it means that it takes on the characteristics of man in every way meaning jesus knows your every temptation and fear church he knows in his humanity every pain and hurt. He can relate to every single one of us and you on every single level of life. Amen? This is good news. Not only is he creator, but he is the one who has walked your every step. He is not distant from your everyday struggles and pains, church. Jesus has walked all of them as he came However, in his humanity, Jesus was sinless. He lived the life that we could not live. He did in the flesh what no man is able to do because he has done what we are unable to do, which is meet the holy standard of God to have perfection in flesh. Now, because of Christ, man has hope where before he had no hope. The king becomes a slave, a servant to us all, to all those who call upon his name and literally does in the flesh what we are unable to do. He lives a sinless life in this fallen world. Who can do this? Exhibit A, Jesus. Here's the transition. However, at Christmas, there is still yet another view in mind in relation to this baby in a manger. And a picture of our God's great step down as our servant. Not only a life and an example, while beautiful and important as Jesus' example and life were, his life and example, brothers and sisters, listen to me, could save no one alone. Look with me, verse three, uh, uh, number three. Jesus receives a humiliating death. We see this in verse eight. I, I put here beside of this, you mark it down, baby born to die. Baby born to die. And it says there in verse 8, and being found in human form, schematics, he took on flesh, fully God, fully man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death. We deserve this death. 
We deserve this punishment. We deserve that wrath. And this baby comes to die. Jesus takes it all. He does it all at the cross. If there is any doubt how far God comes in order to save you, let the manger, yes, please, let the manger remind you he comes the whole distance. He comes the whole way to the manger. Look at the manger and know that it was merely a step to a cross. Jesus stepped into the role of the manger, knowing all his life that it was leading to the moment and place of redemption. He goes all the way to the manger and does not stop to walk all the way to Golgotha's hill for us at Calvary. The picture from our text this morning, the manger, is God stepping down. We see a serving as a slave. God relinquishes his, his, his place of honor for us. And God takes our punishment. God takes all at the cross for our salvation. And what does this all point to, church? Humility, hope, and salvation this season. I want to read you something that I read. And I'm getting ready to be in conclusion. I'm too short. I need to add some stuff, Misty. At Christmas, I pay attention a lot. At Easter, I pay attention a lot. I want to pay attention to what's being taught in Christianity today. I listen to sermons. I read articles. I want to know what's going on. What what goes for Christian at Christmas today? What goes for Christian at Easter today? I'll be honest with you. It seems that in our day and age in which we live, what I am saying about a baby born to die is absolute quite offensive. It's not what we want to hear at Christmas. Jingle, jangle, jangle. Come on. Get happy. It's the best time of the year. You better believe it's the best time of the year. It's one of the best times of the year. It absolutely is. And we have much cause of celebration and rejoicing. We will be joy-filled, amen? We must, but we will be joy-filled in the right things. And the things that absolutely matter. There is an article that I came across, and I thought it was pretty interesting because I've heard this several times in my own, just in talking with individuals. The article is from a, okay, Naomi, watch, ready? Here's my quotes. A Christian website, okay? It's Christian, and it, the article is entitled, Born to Live, While the, Why the Cross Does Not Belong at Christmas. How far... Have we come? Let me read you this article. Yesterday, I passed a church sign that proclaimed Christmas was the story of a baby born to die. Talking about people like me, okay? It seemed a macabre, a macabre which is like the, a, 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 a weird picture of death. That's what macabre is. He said, odd way to wish passerbys a Merry Christmas. Apparently, though, quite a few Christians root the story of Jesus' birth in his death as if they are determined to nestle the cross into the manger, hey, right next to Jesus, which we've done. But Jesus was not born to die. He was born to live. Kumbaya, my Lord. 
It sounds nice, sounds sweet. And I continue. He didn't say kumbaya on the end quote, my quote, now back to the text. At first, I thought I was, I was angry at the theological ineptness of this trend of making Christmas about the cross and its fundamental misunderstanding of the point of the incarnation. But then I realized I wasn't feeling angry, rather it was sadness. I feel sorry for us. I was sad that anyone could look at the infant Jesus still coated in vernix caseosa. That's all that stuff on that baby when it comes out, okay? And see only his death. I was sad that anyone could read the radical story of a baby in a manger and think only of a cross. I was sad that anyone could reduce the mystery of incarnation to the tragedy of crucifixion. The tragedy. And by the way, that's where I actually agree with this article. It is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. The crucifixion is amen, high five, let's go get a burger together and let's talk about the tragedy of the crucifixion. But let me continue. He goes on to say, I was sad because of what it said about who people think Jesus is. It says that Jesus was a dumb lamb, carefully cultivated as pure and blameless, so that God might have him slaughtered to, to set things right in the world. But it wasn't his death and crucifixion that set things right in the world. Rather, it was his incarnate life, incarnated life that shows us what a world set right might look like. It looks like the kingdom of God. The hungry are fed. The wealthy and powerful doing violence for their own sake, toppled with nonviolence and solidarity. The oppressed raised up. The outsider welcomed. The end of condemnation and guilt pressed upon us by religious elites. The end of a life absent of hope, full of death. The salvation of Jesus is in the way he lived. It's in his proclaiming and incarnating, living the good news that God loves us, that God is with us, that a better world is possible, that there is hope when all hope fails. I too read that article and was angry at first. But I too, like the author of the article, find myself sitting in absolute sorrow and sadness for his soul. We cannot live the life that Jesus left. He left us a beautiful model for us to emulate, to pursue holiness. We must, if we love Christ, we will. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's perfect and we're not. He can do what we cannot do. And he linquished it for us because he knew that we cannot save ourselves and Christ comes by way of a manger to ultimately go to the place of the skull so that we don't have to die and be punished for our sins in the flesh. He came and did what we cannot do, that if we have our faith, hope, trust in him, he will save us and wipe away every tear from our eye one day as he returns. Amen. Salvation comes by way of a manger before it ever comes by way of a cross. And there is a conclusion to our text, and it is a beautiful one. Pastor Kyle doesn't have to even preach much. Watch this. Therefore. Isn't that one of the most beautiful words in all the the Bible? Therefore. Bad news, therefore. Here we go. Come on now. Come on. Therefore what? Therefore, don't you read it ahead of me now. I'm supposed to read that, right? Therefore, therefore, 
God exalted him, meaning Christ, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, 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 and amen. Let's be clear what the Mormons miss. Here's what the Jews do not accept, what Muslims cannot fathom, what our own modern culture overlooks and finds oftentimes offensive. There is in that manger God giving himself away, yet remaining fully God. Here we see the king removing his kingly robe and wearing a beggar's rag. Here is God, the judge, rising from the bench and receiving the criminal's scourge. In this manger is a child, a child that is born to die. Here is God exposing himself to evil's spite. Here is Jesus, he who never spares himself until he makes it all the way to Golgotha on Calvary's hill. And there at the cross, there was this. That cross becomes the sum and the sign of his selfless humiliation. And he does it all for you. Amen? He does it all for us, for his glory. Amen. Merry Christmas. This is the gift of Christmas. This is Christmas. For this is the meaning and the significance of all of Christianity. And this is the meaning and the significance for all of us to gather around and hopefully understand and comprehend as the gift of God to us this morning. In this room, some of you know this already. Amen. Some of you may have not fully comprehended what this actually means for us this time of year. I started off with Merry Christmas, right? Guess what? Merry Christmas.